Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I am your host, Tyler, and joining me today, as she does each and every week to answer your mailbag questions is my co-host Charlie, who I was reminded once again this week, Charlie, you are the star of the podcast. I don't think so, but thank you. You, you, you certainly are. Let me pull up this uh, this review, our latest review. I actually need to give a shout out here. Shout out to, I think it was a random, HRSLVR8. Was that you, Charlie? No. It was How many accounts do you have? Are all these you, different accounts? Are you like... On what? On Apple Pods. I don't know how to get to the That's reviews. That's true. It can't be. Are you hiring people to do this for you? No, are I you never hi- look at that stuff. Are you buying people to create bots to do this for you? No. Or are you just really the star of the podcast? Is that what it's come to? I'm not the star. Well, according to HRSLVR8, I need more Charlie. She's the superstar. So no. I, I appreciate the review. Well, that's kind. And Charlie, I, that's a, I don't know if I've ever seen you smile that big before in your life. It feels good, right? I mean, yeah. Feels good. It feels good. You, you, you earned it, Charlie. You are the star of the podcast. I, I, I bow to you. You are, you are the reason people tune in. Um, but yeah, so thank you for that review from H R S L V R A. Also, Hannah H H J C. Oh, although Charlie, read this one from Hannah. Hannah, thank you. Hannah's on my side here. What does this say? I listen to every episode. Just wish Charlie and Curtis were as positive as Tyler. I'm um, realistic. Hmm. I'm realistic. Well, a lot of people will say that I'm too positive. I've been criticized for being like Mr. Sunshine and Rainbows before, which I don't know if I agree with that. Am I like a Sunshine and Rainbows kind of guy, Charlie? Like on, about Georgia football? I feel like I'm very pessimistic too much, actually. Well, they haven't been reminded of how you are when Georgia loses in a while. Yeah, well, Charlie, why not go with Charlie? We can't bring that up right now. I'm just giving you the other side. Well, I'm giving you the other side because, you know, a lot of people think you're the superstar, but Hannah says that she wishes you were more positive. Well, I'll try to be more positive. Yeah, today. more positive. You're bringing people down, Charlie. Got it. No, I'm just kidding. Charlie, you are the star of the show. I'm very glad you're here with me today. And uh, we have a lot of questions to get to. But before we do that, I do want to remind everyone out there, make sure to get all of your cold weather gear. Charlie, it was not warm inside Sanford Stadium for most of that game on Saturday. It was not it was definitely not warm. I kept my jacket on the entire time. Actually, I did too. And I, I had a nice quarter zip on underneath that that I thought I was going to be able to wear out and show off. And then I got from Alumni Hall, our good friends at Alumni Hall. I couldn't even show it off. 
because it was so cold. My jacket on. I actually I think I took it off with like four minutes to go in the game because it kind of got a little warmer late in the game. Well, the sun started to come a out. A little bit, a little bit, but for the vast majority of the game, that jacket was on. So if you guys are like me, and especially if you're going to Knoxville this weekend, guys, I think the high, do you see the high, Charlie? It's like 46. Oh my God, it's dropped a lot. Um, it's, it's this one, we, we knew this was going to happen. We've been talking this all year. The trip to Knoxville, it's going to be really cold in late November and it's going to be really cold. So if you're going to Knoxville or if you're coming to town, to Athens here in a couple weeks when Charleston Southern comes to town, Make sure to stop in Alumni Hall to get all your Georgia gear and accessory needs. All that cold weather gear is on the shelves now, guys. Get yours before it's gone. And I'm telling you, they have every brand you could ever imagine, everything you guys want. Alumni Hall is the place to go. So make sure to check that out today in the Epps Bridge Shopping Center here in the wonderful city of Athens, Georgia, the classic city, or online at alumnihall.com. All right, Charlie, we got some questions. What do you got for me? All right, well, believe it or not, we're not going to start with quarterback questions. Whoa, whoa. Shocking. What's happening here? I know it's shocking. It's an alternate universe. But after Tennessee just put up 45 on a good Kentucky defense, and with us making the trip to Rocky Top this weekend, we had a lot of questions already looking forward to this weekend's matchup, so we're going to start there. Did you see that game? Um, I saw some of it, yeah. What a game that was. I I mean, just looking at the stats, you're like, they had the ball for less than 15 minutes. Yep. And they were like 9.6 yards per play. Like late in the third quarter, it was like 13 and a half yards yeah. per play. I mean, look, look at this stat, stat line here, Charlie. So Kentucky, 612 yards to 461 yards. 35 first downs for Kentucky to 17 for Tennessee. Well, and Kentucky ran like 99 plays and Tennessee ran yeah. like 47 or yeah. something. And somehow Tennessee won that football game on the road. Yeah. It's crazy. Explosive plays. So, yeah, and I, I, if you watch the game, you saw explosive plays. So I understand there being a lot of fans like, oh, is this the best offense that we played? So what do we got? All right. Well, Navy Dog wants to know what your thoughts are on Tennessee's offense and what do we need to do to limit explosive throws? Yeah, Navy Dog, this is a great question. And Charlie, great choice starting off with this question. This is the right question to open this mailbag episode with because obviously Tennessee is a team that's playing good football right now. Are they elite? No, but they're playing far better football than I think any of us thought they would be. And I certainly include myself in that. And their offense has been driving this ship. And they have been very explosive, especially lately, now that Hendon Hooker has taken over full-time as their starting quarterback. They had the Joe Milton experiment early in the season, which was clearly a mistake for them. I honestly, I don't know why they went with Milton to open the season. I know that he's a dynamic athlete, but really not that much more so than Hendon Hooker. Hooker has the ability to hurt teams with his legs as well. It was always a better passer. Milton just cannot hit anyone. I don't care if there's no more than 10 to 15 yards the receiver. He just can't hit them. So I still can't quite figure out why they did that. I know Tennessee fans want to say, well, if we would have started Hooker from the beginning of the season, it's like, yeah, I guess, but you didn't. Coach, your coaching staff made a mistake. They were dumb. But they've ride the ship. Hinton Hooker is playing really good football, and he is really the engine behind this offense right now. Now, from a schematic standpoint, what do they like to do? Obviously, I'll get into this a lot more when we do our official preview episode later on this week, but just to give you some early thoughts here, what Josh Heupel's offenses have really always been, even going back to when he was the offensive coordinator at Missouri, remember for a while there when he was their coordinator, Missouri was consistently in the top five in the country in total offense. Those early Drew Locke offenses, you guys remember that, right? And then he gets the job at UCF as their head coach. 
offense still humming, kind of carries on what Scott Frost was doing. They weren't quite as good overall as they were under Scott Frost. Their offense was certainly doing its part, and now he's taking that same offense to Tennessee where he has better players to work with than he's ever had. And honestly, they don't have the kind of players that they're going to have in the future because they just had such mass attrition at the end of last season. They hit the transfer portal hard, but there are some good players on that Tennessee offense. And really, philosophically, what they want to do from a schematic standpoint, is they want to spread the field, all right? They want to spread the field. They want to stretch you vertically and horizontally. If you watch their receivers, guys, it's like the old Art Briles Baylor stuff where they are lining up essentially on the sideline. They're about as far to the sideline as you can possibly be. And that puts a lot of stress on defenders, puts a lot of stress on safety, trying to get over the top and they run those vertical routes. It puts stress on linebackers trying to get out there into flats, get out there into the coverage, depending on what coverage they're running. It also really stretches you thin from a run game standpoint, because when you have to stretch horizontally that much, it creates a lot of space. It takes guys out of the box and it allows the run game to be far more effective. That's a big part of what they do. They really want to create that space. They want to space guys out by spreading the field, stretch you horizontally from silent to silent, but also, of course, take those vertical shots and stretch you vertically as well. And they do that so that they can attack space. They say they want to spread the field, create space in doing so, and then attack that space in a variety of ways. Really what they're trying to do is put defenders in conflict. That's really what offensive football is all about. We've talked about that many times on this show, but... That's really what they're going for philosophically with how they spread the field, how they try to stretch you vertically and horizontally. They're really heavy in the screen game. That's another thing that they can do to try to kind of be an extension of the run game and also help the run game be more effective. When you have your receiver spread out so wide, basically, again, on the sidelines, and you throw the ball out to them, you pitch it out to them, the linebackers have to be flying. So when they're that wide out, you're going to see the linebackers spread out of the box ever so slightly, ever so slightly more than they normally would, and that just creates more natural run lanes for the offense. And guys, they will run the football. Trust me, they will run the football. In fact, they've run the football about 150 more times this year than they have thrown the football. And they have a mobile quarterback. Hannon Hooker is a guy that can absolutely make plays with his legs. He's a long strider, but they ha- have this guy at quarterback to a degree that I don't think Josh Heupel's ever really had in his system. He's had some guys that can move pretty well. Like Dylan Gabriel at UCF can move pretty well, but he's not the kind of athlete that Hinton Hooker is. So that's one more layer of conflict for the defense. And then, of course, it's all amplified by the ridiculous pace at which they operate. They're top 15 nationally in plays per game. They are operating at warp speed, guys, and that really creates a lot of issues for, for the defense from a communication standpoint, from an adjustment standpoint. I think we actually have a question about that a little bit later on, so I'll get into that a little bit more when we get there. But yeah, this offense is, I would say... As far as I'm concerned, I think it's pretty clear this is the best offense that we will have faced to this point. Does that mean this is an elite Tennessee offense? No, they're not necessarily an elite offense, but they're playing at a really high level right now, and you're absolutely right, Navy Dog. They are hitting chunk plays. They're hitting explosive plays. What do we need to do to be able to limit those explosive plays? Well, I know I sound like a broken record. I'll sound like a broken record really probably the rest of the year. First and foremost, we've got to stop the run. We've got to be able to do that with even numbers. They make it more difficult the way they spread the spread the field. And they also, again, have a mobile quarterback. We've had some issues with that. Not like crazy issues, but we haven't 
been like completely sound defending mobile quarterbacks here the past couple weeks with Anthony Richardson, I guess a little bit of Emory Jones, and of course last week Tyler Macon, and even Brady Cook a little bit. We gave up too many yards to those mobile quarterbacks. We were too undisciplined, too sloppy defending the quarterback run, and Tennessee can absolutely exploit that. So that's key number, key number one. Defend the run with even numbers in the box and also tackle. We'll just do a better job of tackling. It was in, in my opinion, I think that was the, the worst tackling ever we've seen from our defense. We've been a really good tackling defense all year. Not the case. And when they spread you out like that, they want to get guys in space. Tackling is always important, but it takes on a premium when you have guys that operate in space like that. You got to get guys down the ground when you're one-on-one. So that's certainly important. And that will help us limit the one-on-one opportunities that Tennessee is able to create out wide. Because when they get those one-on-one opportunities, they do have some receivers. Guys like Cedric Tillman, Vellis Jones, Jalen Hyatt, they have some guys that can absolutely burn you. They can make you pay if you get them those one-on-one opportunities. So you got to make sure that you stop the run first and foremost. That's really what they want to do. That's how they create these explosive play opportunities is by running the football, running the football, running the football. Get your eyes in the wrong spot there. Get your eyes looking in the backfield. And when they operate at that really fast pace, one wrong look, one slight glance in the backfield, and they are gone because they have that kind of speed. They have that home run speed out wide. So you just got to be disciplined, stop the run, and tackle when you get these guys in space. Next up, Jamie wants to know how worried you are about Tennessee's passing attack. Yeah, so I just went over it a little bit there, but we'll, we'll talk more in detail specifically about the passing game. Jamie, this is a really good question, especially if you watch that Kentucky game on Saturday night. They were hitting some explosive plays early in that game and got out to a lead, and Kentucky tried to keep up. Kentucky came up better than I thought they could because they have not been able to score really all year. I mean, Kentucky put up 600, I think 612 yards on Tennessee, but we'll talk about that more on the preview episode. Your question is about their passing game, but it's explosive. It, It certainly is explosive, and I will say I do think this will be the biggest challenge to date for the Georgia defense. They have a pretty dynamic passing game relative to the competition that we played to this point, okay? I don't want to make it out that Tennessee is this elite passing offense because statistically they are not, but they are dangerous. Saying they're not elite doesn't mean they're not dangerous. They absolutely are dangerous. They have some playmakers out wide that have really good speed. And if you get your eyes in the wrong spot, which is really what they do a good job of, especially with that pace and running the football, then they are certainly fast enough and dynamic enough to make you pay. And Hooker is a good deep ball passer. So I'm not unconcerned. I'm not not concerned here going into this game because I do think it's going to be the biggest challenge we faced offensively all season long and including the passing game. A lot of us have been saying all year long, like, hey, what's going to happen when Georgia faces a team that can beat you through the air? And I think this is the closest that we will have gotten to that to this point in the season. I think there'll be some more dynamic passing offenses down the road, but through 10 weeks, this is going to be the best passing offense that we face, and it's going to be a challenge. But again, going back to what I said a second ago, let's also not make the Tennessee passing offense out to be this offense that's throwing for 400 plus yards a game. All right, they're not Mississippi State. That's not what they're doing. They run the ball more than they throw the ball. In fact, guys, I'm thinking about this. Would you call our passing offense a dynamic passing offense? I don't think anyone in this Georgia fan base would answer yes to that question right now. In fact, there's all this consternation about can we win with Stetson Bennett because he can't beat anyone through the air. Well, guys, right now, Tennessee's averaging 0.6 yards per game more than us through the air. They're averaging 240.6 yards per game throwing the football. We're averaging 240. So if you're going to say Tennessee's an elite passing offense, then you have to say Georgia is too. And I don't think any of you out there listening think that Georgia 
has an elite passing offense? Because we don't. We don't. I think we're good enough. I think we're better than people give us credit for, especially hitting some of those explosive plays. But we're not a dynamic passing offense. Again, really, at heart, this is a running team. They've run the ball 150 more times than they have thrown the football on the year. In fact, they have not thrown for 300 yards in one single game this year. They haven't. The thing is, when they do throw the ball, they've been very effective. They, they set up and create those opportunities with how they run the football, and then they are biting off chunks of yardage in the passing game. They're number one in the SEC in passing plays of 30 or more yards with 20 on the year. Again, we're not that far behind. We have 17 passing plays of 30 or more yards. They also have four passing plays of 70 or more yards. So they are really creating those big play opportunities in the passing game. And that's what scares you because big plays like that are momentum swinging plays that are absolutely game changers. I mean, if you're playing defense, if you ask any defense coordinator out there, okay, so what what are your primary tenets? What do you have to do to play good defense? And the first thing they'll probably say is stop the run. And the second thing they're going to say is limit explosive plays. What you want to do as a defensive coordinator is force teams to consistently grind out yards, play after play after play, and put up 10, 11, 12 play drives and show you that they're not going to make a mistake somewhere along the way. Because the odds are, if you make them go that many plays before they get into scoring position, before they score touchdowns, chances are that they're going to make a mistake somewhere. They drop a pass, they get a penalty, they miss a guy that's open down the field, guy fumbles, throws an interception, whatever it might be. It's just math. At the end of the day, it's just math. If you have to go 10 plays to score, there's a lot more opportunities for you to screw up than there are if you only have to go two plays and score. So that's what scares you about this Tennessee offense is you can be dominating them. I mean, Kentucky in that game outgained them by over 150 yards. Kentucky, again, put up 612 yards in that game. But Kentucky also lost the game because they gave up too many explosive plays, quick scores that just changed that game. And they just, at the end of the day, they try to keep pace and they almost kept pace, but they didn't quite keep enough pace and they end up losing the game which if you look at the statistics in that game Kentucky really kind of dominated the game everywhere but the scoreboard I mean they had 612 yards to Kentucky to Tennessee's 461 Tennessee had 17 first downs Kentucky doubled them up Kentucky had 35 first downs in that game they were 12 of 17 on third down they had the ball for 46 minutes out of out of a 60 minute game so Tennessee had it for under 14 minutes in that game they ran, I think, 99 plays, I want to say, like almost right at 100 plays, but somehow they lost. And how did they lose? Because they gave up explosive plays. That's really what it came down to. So if we want to win this football game, if we want to avoid the upset on Rocky Top, stop the run, avoid the explosive plays, and we will be okay. We'll be okay. I'm not going to say they're not, that they're just not going to score. They probably will. This is the best offense that we have faced. It'll be a different kind of challenge for us. They are more equipped to hurt us in the passing game than any team we face. So it's going to be a challenge, but I also want to make sure we understand that this is not necessarily an elite passing game. They're good and they're dangerous, but they're not consistently putting up massive yardage numbers. They're just biting off chunk plays when they throw the ball. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, Darren said Tennessee had a night game on the road and the defense literally played 100 snaps. Meanwhile, Georgia had a noon home game and most of our front seven sat the entire second half. Is this a big advantage for us? Charlie, if you were a defensive player, even if you're like a 22 year old college football player, all right, I know that's hard for you to imagine. And the 22-year-old part or the football player part? All of them. <laughs> Being a guy, 22 years old, football player, all of the above. I uh, know that's tough, right? But if you went out there and you played 100 snaps in a game against a Kentucky team that runs the football right at you, is as physical as they are, how would you be feeling after that game? Well, I mean, not, not well. But listen, Tennessee doesn't have the depth that Georgia does. So I would say this is an automatic advantage for us. I think absolutely. Well-rested. We have more depth. Their defense had to play 100 snaps, and they don't get as many breathers. Yeah, I mean, we roll guys in and out constantly because we have that kind of depth. There's not much of a drop-off for us. Tennessee doesn't have that ability. They had so many guys in the transfer portal. They've got a decent starting unit. Okay, the front seven's not great. We should be able to run the football on them. Well, we should have run the ball in Missouri. (laughs) Didn't happen so well. Um, Secondary, they're pretty good. But they just don't have that depth. And you're right. I mean, Darren, this is an excellent point. Honestly, Darren, I didn't really think about this until I saw your question. I was just focused on Tennessee's offense. Like, dang, these guys are really good. But that's a great point you make, man. I mean, like, honestly, playing on Rocky, playing up there in Knoxville, Rocky Top, that gives them a great home field advantage. That place is going to be rocking. It's going to be crazy. But the fact that that defense did play a, literally, as you said, literally 100 snaps in that game, that's going to be tough for them. And that's a 330 star with CBS. Um, that's going to be tough. And, and you're right, Char, they don't have that depth. So I do think that it is an advantage for especially a team like Georgia, like you mentioned, Char, that has so much depth offensively and defensively as well. So I do think that's a really important fact in this game. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Darren. Is that, I mean, maybe I would have thought about that. I don't know. I certainly had not thought of it before I saw your, uh, your questions. That's a good one, man. Okay, Trey is on the same wavelength as me. He says his worst fear on Rocky Top is playing on their, quote, Cow pasture of a field. It is a cow pasture. Uh, This goes all the way back to Robert Edwards' foot injury. Yep. Um, You know, Nick Chubb. God. Now several years ago. Oh, terrible. He says, staying healthy going forward is of utmost importance to our goals and wants to know your thoughts. It's a terrible field, Charlie. And I, they, they they blame it on, like, irrigation, partly. And I've heard people blame it on, like, I've heard all these Tennessee fans blame, like, the way the sun hit, doesn't really hit right there, like, where it's located on the river. I know. I know. I, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand what they're talking about. But the way the shading happens, and it's like, well, whatever the reason is, your field's garbage. As Trey says, it is a cow pasture out there. And, and it, it's fine if it looks bad or whatever. But what I have a problem with, and, and Trey's exactly right, Robert Edwards, Nick Chubb, the list goes on. I mean, what, Justin Scott Wesley, years and years ago, we had all those guys go out in that game. 
what was that, 2000, was that 2013? I think it was 2013. I mean, God, I mean, that field, it's a, it's a horror show for opposing, I don't know how their players actually stay alive out there playing on that field six times, six, seven times a year. Well, their ankles and knees are adjusted. I guess that's what it is, but it is not a welcome place for visiting players. And I'm just, you're right, Trey. Like we've gone through the injury bug. We're starting to come out the other side and just hope to God that we do not come out of this game with another major injury. Just come out of this game, obviously with a W, but also healthy. Cause you're right. We got to stay healthy. That's the one big thing. Obviously a loss could derail your, your season, but injuries could seriously derail this season. Okay, Christopher said he was busy watching LSU versus Alabama on Saturday night, so he didn't catch the Tennessee game live. But after he got caught up, he says it shouldn't be that dangerous for us against the Vols. He says blown coverages seem to be what screwed Kentucky on Saturday, and he doesn't think that will happen to the dogs. What's your take? Well, Christopher, I appreciate the question, and I really appreciate your optimism there. I think I'm with you here. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say we're not going to blow any coverages. We've, we've blown coverages this season. It has happened. We've gotten away with it because we haven't really faced any like crazy elite dynamic passing offenses that have really been able to hurt us that way. But if you look closely enough, they're there. I'm not saying it's been an abundance of blown coverages, but... We have had at least a few every game. There, there's a few every game. We're not perfect. Again, no one's been able to exploit that. So it's not really showing up in the stat column and we're not freaking out about it, but they've been there. I mean, just go back to the Florida game. Late in that game when they scored that that final drive where they actually got a touchdown on that drive when we were trying to shut them out. We talked about it on, on the recap episode. Keely Ringo, Latavius Brini, whoever was at fault there. I think it was Ringo. Kirby says it was. I think he was trying to protect his freshman there. But that was a blown coverage on somebody's part it was two blown coverages on basically the same coverage on the same drive and that didn't those two plays alone didn't cost us a touchdown there but they certainly contributed to that i don't i think there's a good chance they might not have scored in that drive if it wasn't for those two plays so they've been there and you're right christopher kentucky really got hurt because of of quite a few blown coverages but it wasn't that Kentucky's just not a well-coached team. They are. It's a really well-coached defense. The problem for them was the tempo. Those blown coverages were really induced by the tempo at which Tennessee's offense operates. They just go, again, at warp speed. And that makes communication and adjustments very, very difficult. I also think, like, if you watch the game closely, I think the fact that game was at home and the Tennessee offense, as fast as they go... And as much pressure as they put on defenses to communicate, I think the fact that that game was in Lexington, because Lexington, guys, if you've been there for a night game, you know what I'm talking about. But if not, I I know you think as as a basketball school, and it totally is, but they actually care about football. They just aren't traditionally good. And if if they have a good team there, like Georgia, at home at night, that's that's a pretty loud stadium for the size that it is. And so when Tennessee's there, it's a rivalry game at home at night. It was a loud crowd, and that actually worked against the defense. When is the home crowd loud? They're loud when the opposing team is on offense, trying to mess up with their communication, right? Well, when they did that, what they yeah, they kind of, I guess, made it tougher for Tennessee to communicate, but they also made it really hard for their defense to communicate, and that is something that is critical when you're playing a team like Tennessee that goes as fast as they do, and it really hurt them. So it made communication difficult, it made adjustments difficult, and they blew some coverages because then you also get your eyes in the wrong spot because you're you're operating in a split second. And one short, quick glance in the wrong spot can get you beat, and you give up explosive plays because they have those kind of home run hitters at wide receiver. So you're right, Christopher. I do think that 
this was something that, that really hurt Kentucky, the fact that there were some low coverages, the pace they went at. But, and I think that we will be better equipped to handle that because I do think we are better defensively. We have some veterans back there in the secondary outside of Keely Ringo. But as much as you try to do it in practice, that tempo is very, very difficult to replicate, to really simulate for your defense. I and mean, your scout team can give you the best shot they possibly can, but it's not going to be the same thing. You can, you might get kind of close-ish, but it's going to be a different story when you walk out there on the field on Saturday in Knoxville and they're going at warp speed like that. It just it, it takes an adjustment. And Tennessee was able to capitalize on that early in that game, take an early thing. They score on the first play of the game, I want to say, and they really never looked back. All right, well, you and Curtis discussed it on the recap episode earlier in the week, but listeners sent in a lot of questions about the offensive line after a poor showing against Mizzou. There seems to be a good deal of concern out there among our listeners. So first, Barry says, or asks, is it just me or is our offensive line pretty bad? Run and pass blocking appear to be the worst he can remember in recent years. If you agree, do you blame talent or coaching or both? Also, Alexander had a similar question and asked, what is going on with the run blocking? He says, going against the worst run defense in the nation and Missouri, and we still struggled to run the ball. Is there anything we can do to fix this? Is there a better offensive line grouping available, or will this just be a weakness for the remainder of the season? I mean, Barry and Alexander are nailing it right here. We talked about this on the recap episode earlier in the week. We actually spent quite a bit of time talking about this, Curtis and I did. It is, I don't want to say it's a problem. I don't know if it's gotten to that level yet, but it's at least a concern for me at this point. And Barry, back to your question, is it you or is this offensive line pretty bad? Is it the worst that you can remember in recent years? Yeah, I. it is. I think it's certainly our worst since 2016 for sure. I mean, 2017, we were not as good as we were going to be. You know, when you have Andrew Thomas and Isaiah Wilson, bookends for you get there for a couple years both those guys first round draft picks but I mean 2016 was definitely the worst of Kirby Smart era making that transition uh, from Rick from Mark Rick to Kirby Smart 2017 was a little bit better 18 19 better last year pretty good this year not as good okay not as good and, it, and it's not that we don't have really good players we have guys that are really talented remember all those five stars that we kept signing understand Pittman those guys are still largely on the roster the problem is they're all really young. So the, the most talented guys on the offensive line right now in that room are guys like Roger Jones, Marius Mims, Tate Ratledge, who's who was going to be a, probably our best offensive lineman this year. That's what I was told. But he obviously went out in week one. That really hurts. I don't think people really understand how much that is impacting the offensive line, the offense in general right now. Because again, as I've said many times this season, we basically have two centers playing. That was a really big blow for this offense that no one's talking about. Everybody wants to talk about George Pickens not being there, and Burton was out, and Aaron Smith was out, JT was out. Nobody mentions Tate Ratledge, and that guy was going to break out and be a big-time player for us this year. So that's certainly something that really hurt us. And so when some of those young guys are either hurt or just not quite ready yet to crack in the lineup and really earn the coach's trust, you're stuck with some guys who are veterans, and maybe saying they're stuck is is too strong. That's not the right word. I don't know, but you've got guys like Warren Erickson, who's really a center. He'd be a good center for us, a good solid center. But him playing guard in place of a guy like Ben Cleveland last year, we're just different. It's just a different group of guys that can't do the same things that we had been doing on the interior. Now Justin Schaefer's got good size, but as we talked about ad nauseum with Justin Schaefer. 
he spends far too much time just like doing the worm on the ground. Guys just chilling out, doing whatever he's doing down there on the ground, man. I've never seen offensive linemen. Well, I'll take that back. Cade Mays is the only other offensive lineman that I can remember in recent memory that spent more time on the ground than Justin Schaefer. When Schaefer can keep his feet, he's pretty good, but it's just not consistent enough right now. And Cedric Van Pran on the inside, I think he's going to be a really good player, but he's also one of those guys, he's a center. Most centers aren't physically dominant. That's just the nature of that position. He's done a good job for us as a young guy, making sure that we're in the right protections, identifying things up front, kind of the quarterback of the offensive line. But he's not a physically dominant guy. And that's okay if you have a guy like Ben Cleveland next to you. But we don't have a guy like Ben Cleveland next to him. We have Warren Erickson, who's also a center next to him. And so we're just having a tough time consistently creating movement on the interior of the offensive line. That's why we're having more success running on the edges is because we have guys like Darnell Washington out there who just devastate blockers. Darnell Washington is not playing guard. He can't devastate the guys on the interior. I guess you, you, maybe if he's playing H-back and you're an insert block, I guess you can do that. But he's more on the edge there. And that's why we're having more success. And you saw us start to go to more of those perimeter run plays against Missouri on Saturday. Why were we not having as much success on the interior? Well, they were doing some run blitzes and they were outnumbering. Sure, absolutely, all those things are true. But the fact remains, all year long, we just haven't got any kind of consistent movement because we're just not big enough. We're not strong enough. We don't have enough beef on the interior. And I've been talking about that since really week one or week two, and it hasn't really changed. I was hopeful that maybe we would be able to move Jamari inside and Broderick Jones would be ready to play left tackle. And I think we have a question about that a little bit later on. We'll get to that in a minute here. But I just don't know if he's quite there yet. So I think really offensive line is probably what the offensive line is right now. And that is a concern. So if I, do I blame talent or coaching? I think we have the talent. I really do. Again, it's just the most talented players are young and the coaches rightly or wrongly don't feel like those guys are ready to go out there and play better than the the older guys. Even though they're more talented, they're just apparently not quite there yet. And I do know on the recap episode, if you guys listen to that, it, I, it sounded like we were just hammering the team. And this, this is after a game that we won 43 to 6. And I understand some of you are probably like, why all the negativity? We just blew out this team. Why are you sitting here spending the first half of the show talking about why and how we didn't play to the standard that, that we've set for ourselves? And I'll stand by that. I don't think that we played to our standard. But it's a really good thing that when you don't play to your standard, you're still able to win 43-6 to six against a conference opponent. That's a really good thing. It's a really good thing when you don't play to your standard against your rival in Florida and you still win that game 34-7. to seven. So it's certainly all relative. But again, I'm just trying to give you guys my take on how well the team played. Relative to everyone else in the country, we played really well, but I don't think we played as well as we can, and we need to start playing better on a more consistent basis moving forward. You got to get better as the season goes on. I think in some areas we are, but I don't say we're not taking a step back, but we just got to make sure we're firing on all cylinders. But to maybe paint a little bit more of a rosy picture here for you guys who like to look at things through bulldog colored glasses, through those red and black colored glasses, which trust me, guys, I do too. That's no shot. I do the same thing. It's all relative because while we might have struggled, and struggled a strong word, while we might not have had as much success running the football against the worst rushing defense in all of America, again, 130th out of 130 teams in the FBS, that's what Missouri was coming into the week, and they held us about 120 or so yards below the average they're normally giving up. Even though we weren't as successful running the ball as I would have liked to have been, and I think we should have been against that Missouri defense and that, and that front six, Alabama also played LSU on Saturday night. I'm sure a lot of you watched that game because Alabama almost lost that game. Alabama had six yards rushing on 26 attempts, 0.2 yards per rush against a very bad LSU rush defense at home. So while we weren't as successful running the ball against Missouri as I would have liked to have been, again, 
all relative. There are other teams that people consider to be elite teams that had far more issues last week than we did. So there's that as well. And then to get to Alexander's part of this question, because they are very closely related here, but Alexander is asking, is there anything that we can do to fix these issues? And this is something I did touch on a little bit on the recap episode, but I'll go into a little more detail here and, and just kind of recap that for some of you who might not have a chance to listen to that episode yet. I th- I really do like Todd Munkin. You guys, if you listen to the show all season, you know that. I, I think Todd Munkin is the best coordinator we've had, and it's really not even close, at least on the offensive side of the ball. But it doesn't mean he's perfect any coach. There's some things where he, that he can improve. All coaches can improve. They can get better. It's like any human being, whatever line of work you do, you can get better at it. And I think one of the things that we can do a better job of is packaging plays offensively, running constraints off of base run action. So what I mean by constraint, a constraint play, like just give you a, a run-of-the-middle example. Let's say you're running outside zone and you establish outside zone, outside zone, outside zone, but you want to keep a defense honest. That's really what a constraint play is, is keeping defenses honest. So maybe the third or fourth time after you've run outside zone a couple of times, you get their eyes thinking outside zone, you get them flowing with that, then you go play fake and you bootleg out of that, right? And you hit a tight end crosser coming across the, the middle of the field. Something like that. That's a constraint play, okay? I th- and we've done a pretty good job of that this year. I think we need to do a more consistent job of doing that and really package more plays, more constraint plays off of our base plays. I'd also really like to see us throw more on first down. I think when we throw the ball, especially off play action on first down, we're really successful. We do it occasionally. I don't think that we do it enough. So one of the things that you can do to pull teams out of the box is you've got to actually take advantage of what they're giving you. And that is hit those explosive plays in the passing game. We started to do that in the second quarter on Saturday and Missouri eventually had to start pulling guys out of the box a little bit. They were still very stubborn to pull those guys out of the box. I guess they were essentially saying, hey, you're going to do this all game long, and we dare you to do that. And you know what? We did it. And they were able to slow down our run game. It was kind of like the Mississippi State game last year. If you, remember, if you guys remember back to that game when JT Daniels first start, they sold out to stop the run because JT Daniels coming off injury. How healthy is he? How effective is he going to be? They don't know. They know we want to run the football. And they absolutely sold out to stop the run, and they, and they stoned us. We could not run the football to save our lives. But what were we able to do? Well, JT Daniels threw for 400 yards. The only time in the Kirby Smart tenure we've had a quarterback throw for over 400 yards. That's what we had to do. We had to take advantage of what they were giving us. So I think we need to do that more consistently. Not Obviously not throwing on every first down. We've got to mix it up more there. Throwing on first down is a good thing for us. And as I also said on the recap episode, I would really like us to really incorporate more quarterback run game. One of the things Curtis and I were talking about, and I'll, I'll build on it here, if we're going to go with Stetson Bennett, we need to go with Stetson Bennett. We need to be all in with his skill set. None of this half measure kind of stuff, which is kind of what we're doing. I feel like, like we're, we're, we've certainly changed the offense a little bit to fit Stetson's skill set, but we haven't really transformed the offense to fully fit his skill set. Like we're still running a lot of stuff that we were doing with JT. And I don't know if that's because we were hoping that JT might eventually be able to come back and you weren't sure, like, you really want to go all in with Stetson. If there's a good chance JT's going to be back at some time, you might want to go with him. Do you want to take that step? And I don't have the answer there. You guys know that I, if I'm making the decision, I would prefer JT to be in there right now because I do think he gives us a better chance to actually win with the passing game. I think he's in more control back there. I think that he is more decisive. I think he just gives us a little bit more in the passing game. Not to say that Stetson can't do it. I think that's overplay. It's not that Stetson can't do it. I just think JT's better at that. But it's not to discount what Stetson does bring to the table, which he does give us something in the quarterback run game. My problem with this is is Kirby is talking about how mobility is a separating factor between JT and Stetson Bennett right now. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. Having a mobile quarterback is a huge deal. 
My issue with that is if you're using that as an excuse, if you're using that to justify your decision to go with Stetson Bennett, then you need to actually use his mobility more consistently, not just use it on scrambles where he's kind of extending plays and you you call a zone read or quarterback draw once or twice a game to kind of keep him honest. It needs to be a more integral part of what we're doing. That will certainly open up the rest of the run game more than it is right now. Because think about that game against Missouri, guys. A lot of those plays that were being being made by that Missouri defense tackling us at the, uh, at the line of scrimmage, behind the line of scrimmage, those were free runners because they were outnumbering us in the box. How do you account for that? Well, you take the numbers advantage back by using the quarterback as a runner. That's plus one because now the guy that he's normally handing the ball off to, the running back, becomes an extra blocker. So you take back the numbers advantage or at least even it out there when you use a quarterback in the run game. Now, I know the argument against says, well, Stetson's really small. Yeah, guys, I know Stetson's small, okay? He's small. I get that. He can't take a ton of shots. But you can coach a quarterback to get down, to slide. And I'm not advocating running quarterback power with him. You have to understand who your quarterback is. But there's still some things that we can do with the design quarterback run game that I think can really open up our overall run game even more than we've been able to open up with Stetson at quarterback. I also want to see more RPOs. So we run RPOs. Don't get me wrong, we do. I'll give you an example. It's the, uh, the play to Brock Bowers, third and two, where Brock Bowers is lined up out wide, basically as a receiver, and Stetson's under center. He takes a step back. He throws the ball out to Bowers, who's got one-on-one coverage out there. The guy's getting about 10 yards cushion. You take that. He gets a little stiff arm and goes for about a 25-yard gain, almost scores a touchdown, right? That's an RPO. If you watch that play, offensive line's blocking run there. Stetson just had the read. He saw that they're playing 10 yards off Bowers. He had the, he had the option to throw it out there, and he, he just pitched it out there, and we made a big play off that. That is the kind of thing that we've got to do more consistently. Think about a guy like Devontae Smith last year, guys. Devontae Smith won the Heisman Trophy largely off RPOs. That's really what they were running more than anything at Alabama. Now, they'd run some play-action stuff too, but more than anything offensively, what they were doing is running RPOs. Those little quick slants, what they would call a glance route, that, those were primarily RPOs. And he would take it, he would catch it, and take it to the house because you had to respect Najee Harris in the run game. And so you create these throwing windows and he's so athletic when he gets into space like that, the rest is history. We need to do more things like that. We have guys that can do things like that. We've just got to create those opportunities for them. And not only will that make the passing game more effective and more efficient, it also makes your running game more efficient because now defenders have to be a step slower in their run fits because they got to account for the RPO that might be pulled and thrown behind their heads. So to me, we've got to do more of that. I know we do it some, I'm not saying we don't do a sum. The interception that JT Daniels threw was an RPO. We've got to make it a more integral part of our offense if Stetson Bennett is going to be our quarterback. Quarterback run game, RPOs, throwing on first down, run those constraints off base play actions. Those are the kind of things that help you protect an offensive line that is maybe not as physically dominant. Not maybe, it's just simply not as physically dominant as the kind of offensive lines that we've had in the past. So we cannot impose our will on really good defenses. When they get in, when they stack the box like that and they load it up and they outnumber us, in the past, we've been able to still find a way to run the football and hit explosive plays. It's a different kind of offensive line. We're not going to consistently be able to do that. I'm not saying that we can't ever do it, but we're not going to be able to do it as consistently as we had in the past with guys like Ben Cleveland and Isaiah Wilson and Andrew Thomas and Isaiah Wynn, Lamont Gilliard. We don't have those kind of guys right now. So we've got to find ways to counteract that, protect them, and work within this offensive line and what we have to work with. And I think those are the solutions to what we're seeing right now in the run game. Okay, Jay Rake says that he thought Broderick Jones looked great 
and wants to know if he'll stay at left tackle when Salyer is back healthy and can hopefully be our best lineup with Salyer at left guard and Schaefer at right guard. What do you think? Thanks for the question, Jay Rake. Uh, you know, I, I thought Broderick for his first start played well, but there's still a lot that he's got to clean up. It's not that he's like super far off from being a big-time player at left tackle. I think he's close, but he still has some work to do. One thing that concerned me watching that game is he let guys cross his face far too easily, just far too easily, not even really put him a fight sometimes when this guy's crossing his face and making plays in the backfield. He can't let that happen. He just can't let that happen. I know he's he's young, he's inexperienced, and he's going to get better with more reps. I get that. I'm glad he's getting those reps, especially in a game like that against Missouri where we're probably going to win even if he's in there. But that can't happen against better teams. It just can't. If it's happening against Missouri, what's going to happen when we play Alabama or whoever we play? Maybe if it's A&M and it ends up being them, they have a good front seven as well. Those kind of things concern me. He, I also think he needs to do a better job of sustaining blocks more consistently. And the reality is he's just got to continue to get bigger and stronger. I mean, we talked about this a couple times this season. He got injured. At, he had just kind of a little freak accident at the beginning of last season in fall camp. And uh, he was making some waves before that, but that was a setback. He basically couldn't really work out. And so he got behind from the strength standpoint, from a size standpoint, and he's made gains. He's caught up a good bit but he's still got to continue to get bigger and get stronger and that's still a concern I have when we already like if you have some road graders on the interior of the offensive line you can maybe get away with that with a guy like Roger Jones who's not quite there yet physically at left tackle but we don't have those guys inside so when you're already kind of deficient in size and strength and mass on the interior and you throw a guy like Roger Jones out there at left tackle who is kind of has the same issues that just makes it harder to run the football and harder to try to impose your will on teams. Now, obviously, the trade-off would be if we're able to get to the point where we trust him at left tackle, maybe we can slide Jamari Salyer inside at right guard, and you get more beef, more size, more strength, more mass on the interior, and you get more of a push, you get more movement on the interior. I, I think that's a possibility as well. But again, you're not as strong at left tackle, and that's obviously your with, with the right-handed quarterback. That's going to be the quarterback's blind side. You need your premier pass protector out there. And it's not that Jamari's a premier pass protector. He's really, I, I think long-term, we've said this many times, more of a guard. But he's just more experienced out there. Broderick is a better athlete. Broderick is, is longer and has more of a skill set to be a really good pass protector than Jamari does. But he's so inexperienced. He's so green out there. It's just hard to trust him against some of the more dynamic pass rushers are going to have to face. Like, I like Will Anderson eventually, potentially down the road. I, I mean, I don't know if I love that matchup with any of our offensive linemen, but, but Broderick Jones, I don't know if he's ready for that right now. I just don't know. And I hope I'm wrong. I really do. And if he gets more playing time, hopefully he'll continue to improve and he'll he'll prove me wrong and he'll kind of put aside any concerns I might have. But those concerns are still there for me. Uh, but the good thing is it sounds like Jamari's injury might not be as severe as maybe was initially feared and that he might actually have a chance to play this weekend at Tennessee. Don't quote me on that, but that was what I was told today. When I asked somebody, it's like, how bad is it for Jamari? And I was told, like, it's not that bad. He might play against Tennessee. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I would probably say, right now, I would lean towards no. I, I don't know. I, it, there's no break there. I know that. I don't know exactly what he's dealing with. But it's just an injury that's kind of been bothering him for a couple of weeks, and they want to try to get him some rest. But I think there's a chance he might be back this week. So maybe it's a moot point. We'll see. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Next up, Charlie asks Are our second string guards better than our first string guards? Also, and he knows he asked about this for Florida too, are you concerned that Alabama is sandbagging right now? He has a bad feeling that they'll get it all figured out just in time for the SEC championship game. What did you make, honestly, that LSU game? Because that was my lock of the week. Where did LSU come from? Was it more about LSU just in a rivalry game, having one final opportunity to dig deep and come up with a big effort? Or is it more about Alabama? I think it was more about LSU. Really just the rivalry And then game. they were able to throw them off. And we saw that from LSU last year, the Florida game, right? Florida was riding high, so had a chance for the playoffs, and they go into Gainesville last year in the shoe game and pull that out of nowhere. So it's like, eat, I know they did not end up being Alabama, although they had shots to be Alabama. But, yeah, LSU, I don't know where that came from, but you have to be, like, if you're an Alabama fan, don't you have to be, like, at least slightly concerned? Because the LSU team is not good. Yeah. The LSU team is not good. Like, I don't, I don't think we But, played... I mean, there's a huge gap between Georgia and everybody else right now. I think that's true. I don't, and I don't think we've. And I, Curtis and I were not critical. We, what we said on the recap episode is that we didn't play to our standard this week against Missouri. But the thing is, even though we, did, I thought we played sloppy. I don't think we played particularly well. I don't think we played particularly well against Florida last week. We had a, a huge second quarter, some momentum turning plays that that changed the game there. But I don't think we had like this crazy awesome performance either the past two weeks. But we still won both those games by twenty plus points. In this case, you know, Missouri won by thirty plus points. Whereas Bama, you know, teams have they don't play your best every now and then. But they barely got out of the win. They should have lost that game. They honestly should have lost the game. But it was very interesting to see how that one played out. But are they sandbagging? I, I know this this is tongue-in-cheek, but I, I would lean towards no on that. In fact, I would strongly lean towards no because Nick Saban doesn't allow that. If it was another coach, Dan Mullen, maybe, maybe. I, I can certainly buy that more than Nick Saban. Nick Saban just doesn't let that happen. I think the reality is, as I've been saying all year, that Alabama is really, 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 really good. Relative to this season, they're one of the elite teams in the country but they're still not quite that vintage Alabama team that we saw maybe last year and years past. They're not quite that good. Now they can, They're good enough to be anybody on any given day, but they're just not as good as some of these Bama teams that we've seen in the past. And I think you're seeing that. You saw it against LSU. You saw it against Texas A&M. These are some games that probably shouldn't have been as close as they were. And even the, the Tennessee game, the first half of that game, Tennessee put a scare into them. Now, they, obviously, they pulled away, but... That wouldn't have never even been close with some of those previous Bama teams. And then as for the other part of your question, Charlie, are second string guards better than our first string? I think long term, I don't hate that take. I think that might actually be true, especially like I mentioned Tate Ratledge earlier. This is a guy that very well could end up being our best offensive lineman this year. Unfortunately, he got the foot injury in week one. We have, we're not going to see him until next year. And I don't, he's not really a backup. He was a starter. But yeah, I mean, he's better than Warren Harrison. I feel very confident saying that. Devin Willick's a guy that I've heard a lot of really positive things about coming out of uh, out of practice, really going back to fall camp. He's not quite there yet, but he's a guy talking about beef and mass and strength. He's a guy that solves that problem. I think he's going to be pretty good for us. I haven't seen him at the college level, but I'm excited to see what he can bring to the table. So I think long-term, 
yeah, I think maybe the guys that have the highest ceilings or higher ceilings than the guys that we have right now are behind them. I don't think that's a crazy take at all. Okay, Eric wants you to explain why JT's throw was intercepted and why this shows that Kirby Smart has indeed made the correct choice at quarterback up to this point. He was sure to throw in there that it's not a Stetson or J. He's not a J- Stetson or a JT hater. He just wants people to understand where JT is at at the moment. Curtis and I have talked about this a little bit on the recap episode, Charlie. So I want to get your take on this. I mean, we saw JT for the first time in a couple of weeks and a month plus here. Do you still feel like Stetson Bennett is going to continue to be the starting quarterback? Um, I think next week for sure. This week. Do you think JT still has a chance to take that job back? I do. See, I don't know. I, I, I. I'm certainly open to the possibility. I just think the fact that we waited till we were up 33-3 in that game, in the game as well, in hand to bring JT in, didn't have him like set up to go in like the third series or something like that, like a playing rotation like that. That leads me to believe that I think our coaches are just leaning in on Stetson. We'll see. I don't know. I just I get that vibe right now. Right, but honestly, who knows what's going to happen? And, and that's what. And then that's my other thing. Is like maybe the coaches just don't even know. Maybe they, maybe they literally are taking this week by week, and that might be the case. It's just it's tough to know. Um, I don't know. I just get the vibe that it's Stetson. We'll see. But as for that specific play where Jay Daniels threw the interception, it, it was a pretty simple play. It was an RPO with a slant to Jermaine Burton coming from the outside. The play was there. The linebackers bit on the run action because they were selling out to stop the run like pretty much everybody that we play does. That's what I'm talking about with RPOs. We're going to have those plays available to us almost every single down, at least on those early downs when we run RPOs. Those plays are going to be there. And if JT would have hit Burton in stride, I'm not guaranteeing it would have been a touchdown, but there was a chance that that play could have been a touchdown. There, there, there was a gap there. There was a hole. There was some space. But he threw the ball behind him. Ball gets tipped. Ball gets in the air. Ball gets intercepted. It was really that simple. It was just a poor throw. And look, I'm not going to kill JT for that. I mean, it's. I don't think people should nitpick and kill Stetson for every kind of halfway poor throw he makes, and we shouldn't do the same thing to JT either. Now, if they're making consistently poor throws then that's one thing. you got a completion percentage around the, the low 50s. That's one thing. But this, this is a guy that's coming off injury who hadn't played in, what, a, a month plus now? And there's some rust there. That's one of the reasons I was really excited to see him get back in there is to be able to knock some of that rust off. I thought he played really well for the most part. It was one poor throw, uh, and it was an interception. But I thought he did some really good things, and I think if he's given more opportunities like that, that he'll hit that throw far more often than not. All right, we have one more quarterback question from Guy. He wants to know, do you think we see more mixing of the quarterbacks during gameplay in the upcoming weeks, Um, more like the South Carolina game than a garbage time swap is what he's thinking. Also, any updates on how Brock is progressing and what we can expect from Gunner? He loves both of those guys. Yeah, Guy, good question, man. This is, I guess what I was talking about a little bit earlier in one of those previous questions. I I think... Right now, based off what I'm seeing, that Stetson's the guy. That's what I'm taking away from what I've seen since JT has been clear and he's back and healthy and ready to play. Going back to the Florida game where JT did not get in at all, and that was a blowout-type game, especially in the second half. And then this week, yes, he got in in the second drive of the, of the third quarter and played pretty much the rest of the way. But he did not get in until we were up 33-3, and that game was well in hand. So I think if... If there was more of a plan to really integrate him more fully back into the offense, I think you would have seen more of like a, a rotation where like, let's say he comes in, like you see with some teams, like on the third drive, right? And it's pre-planned. And that wasn't the case. It was almost kind of just like, okay, well, we're going to wait till we're up big and we feel comfortable and, and this game is, we're pulling away in this game and then we'll get him in. And it happened to be when it was in the early portions of the third quarter. So right now, I, I don't, 
I'm not going to say that JT is not going to continue to play. I think if we get big leads, you'll see him come in. And if, if Stetson falters, I think there's also a chance that you're going to see that. Although my thing is I don't, I don't like the idea of waiting until Stetson falters and we get in a really bad position before making the move. If you think that JT's gives you a better chance to win, you need to play the guy. No, but I, that's just not where the coaches are right now. Right now, clearly the coaches feel like Stetson is a guy that gives us a better chance. You can disagree with that. I kind of disagree with that myself, but they're the ones that are at practice and that's the decisions they're making right now. And I think right now we just need to come to terms with the idea that Stetson is going to be the guy. And I, I, I just think that's where we are at this point. I really want to believe that JT is just going to take the job back, but at this point, I'm just in believe it when I see it mode. I'm just not going to let myself believe it until I actually see it happen. Uh, Brock, he's a guy that um, he's making good strides from what I've heard. He's not really getting a bunch of, obviously he's not getting really any reps with our offense. He's basically run the scout team, which is what guys at that stage do, but he's looking good. The coaches are still very high on Brock. I'm still very high on Brock. He gives us some athleticism and the ability to throw the football. Gunnar Stockton, a very similar type guy, um, breaking records at the high school level right now getting ready to enter the, the, uh, the high school playoffs. So he's a guy that'll come in next year and compete, although we'll see what the quarterback room looks like. I think there's a really good chance Stetson comes back, and depending on what happens there, maybe JT comes back. I don't know. I don't think Brock or Gunner, either one of those guys, is going to be the guy next year. I just don't. I think they're going to battle out to see who's going to be the guy going into the 2023 season, maybe a year later than we were all expecting. We thought it would be 2022. Looks like it's probably going to be 2023 if I had to put money on it right now. Josh wants us to stop and recognize the work that Trayvon Walker and Latavius Brini are doing right now. They aren't getting the spotlight, but they sure are playing like it's on them. Both have played major roles in our defense lately. Yeah, Josh is great. I think we mentioned a little bit on the recap episode. Gave you a shout out there. I will bring it up again, though, man. You're exactly right. Trayvon Walker... Trayvon Walker is playing lights out right now on a defense that's full of stars that are playing at high levels. Walker has certainly include himself on that list. Like He's certainly making people start to take notice of him. He plays that five-tech defensive end position, which is not normally a glamour position in our defense or really any 3-4 base defense, although we don't really play a base 3-4. But he does have this position versatility that allows him to move around and do some different things. And we can do some different things from a schematic standpoint with him. We can drop him in coverage like we saw against Florida. I mean, that, that really athletic deflection on the Nolan Smith interception. He's playing lights out, man. He's really raising his game. I think he's making opposing offensive coordinators take notice. And he's also making NFL draft scouts take notice as well. And Brini, he might not be a superstar, the most talented player on the team, but he has played lights out from week one for us. People have been challenging him as maybe one of the weak points in the defense, and he's just responded time and time again. So you're exactly right, Josh. I really appreciate you pointing those guys out, man. Okay, we have two questions left. This one is from Drew. He says he hates to even bring it up, but how does Adam Anderson's situation affect the defense, and how do we replace him? Man, it certainly doesn't help. That's for sure. We have a number of good pass rushers on our team, and we've done a really good job of scheming things up to allow the linebackers to get more of the inside linebackers to get more involved in the pass rush as well. But Adam Anderson is like, in terms of speed rushers, he's the best pure speed rusher that we have. We don't really have another guy that rushes the passer the way that he does. That's not to say that we don't have other good pass rushers. We do. Trust me, we do. But we don't have a guy that does exactly what he does. And one of the things that really makes Adam Anderson really valuable is not just his ability to rush a passer. He's certainly very good rushing the passer. But his versatility, his athleticism allows us to do some different things from a coverage standpoint 
that I think becomes tougher when he's not in there. And it's like, you just don't want to have a, a potential game-changing type talent, which Anderson is. I think he's a game-changing type talent. You're not better off when he's not in the game. Let's just be real about that. We're not a better defense without Adam Anderson. And I don't know when he's going to come back. I don't know. I don't know if we've seen the last of Adam Anderson in a George uniform. I don't know if he'll be back in a week or two. I don't know the way these kind of investigations play out. There's just no telling right now. But until there's some sort of resolution he's not going to be with us. So we just got to prepare for that. And Robert Beal is obviously going to see a lot more snaps. His his usage is going to go way up. He's going to fill some of those snaps that Anderson was playing in some of those standard down situations. And Beal is a better run defender than Anderson. He's stronger at the point of attack than Adam is, but he's certainly not the, as dynamic of a pass rusher. He can rush the passer, just not the way that Adam Anderson can. He can drop into coverage, just not the way Anderson can. He's not as athletic, not that kind of player. And Anderson just gives us some things that we can do from a cover standpoint. They're just different. What I expect to see, and we saw this a, a fair amount on Saturday. It's what I thought was going to happen coming in. I think you're going to see more and more of it. I expect Quay Walker to get a lot of those snaps on third down. He's a guy that has a lot of pass rushing ability, like true, like legit pass rushing. Like, let's say Nicobe, for instance, you're know, rushing the passer, uh, you know, blitzing from the interior, those kind of things. He's a good pass rusher. He does it really well. He times it well. He's aggressive. He's athletic. But like actually beating tackles with like pass rush moves, that's not really what Nicobe Dean does. Quay Walker has more of that in him. He did a lot of that in high school coming in. That's why it took him a year or so to actually get into the rotation uh, at inside linebacker because that's just not really what he did coming out of high school. He was more of like an edge player. He rushed the passer more often than not, played in space, kind of what what Adam Anderson does. And he's got the link to be able to do that more than like Nicobe can. And his athleticism is similar to Anderson. I mean, we use Quay in that way at times. We've used him like that in the past at times on third downs. And I expect to see more of that. He's a guy, obviously, as an inside linebacker that can play in space, can cover, does a really good job there. And he's playing lights out right now. So when you when you have a guy like him that helps out and you also have Channing Tindall who can play inside, um, I think that helps us out. So I, I don't think it's like a death blow for us. Because I'll say this, if we are the team that we think we are, Losing Adam Anderson is not going to keep us from national championship. Does it help us get closer to a national title? No, it certainly hurts more than it helps. But I don't think losing Adam Anderson is a death blow for this team, for this defense, especially with the talent that we have and the depth that we have in that front seven. Now, in the secondary, it's harder to replace. We don't have the, the depth. We don't have the guys. But I think we have some options up front. And trust me, guys, I want to get Adam Anderson back. When the news broke late last week, I, you guys know I am. I, I, I live for this stuff, man, and it, I was devastated. It's like, oh my god, I had those thoughts. Like a lot of you had, like, oh my god, here goes the season. But then you stop me thinking about it. It's like, okay, okay, maybe not so much. I would love to have him. I'd rather have him than not have him. And I'm still not happy he's not with us. But I don't think that's a death blow for this team. And to round out the questions from this week, Gary says, it was awesome to see Mark Rick get honored at halftime. I personally think that they did a really great job with thought, that. Yeah, I thought they did a fan. I, I thought it was just like him coming out there and saying, hey, great job, Mark. The, the band, the whole band performance was themed for Mark Rick, going through like his entire career at Georgia, even before his career at Georgia. Had a really nice tribute video. It was awesome. Yeah, so Gary wants to know what your favorite Mark Rick memory is. I know you're a, a big Mark Rick person. And I am too. I love Mark. Great I love person. Mark. He's an. A, I, I think when I tweet out, and I'll stand by this. Hall of Fame human being. Yes. Absolute Hall of Fame human. Agreed. Being. I love him dearly. Um, what a uh, what memory stands out for you, with Mark? The one that came to mind. I mean, there are a lot. I really liked um, when he got the team fired up and let them celebrate <laughs> on the field at the Florida game. 
That is so and just not what let I would them think you all would say. Run down. Oh, you, you, Trent Sturdivant, the guy that does a little dance, right? Yes. You, I remember it, you were the one, right, when that happened. That you were like, he was your new favorite player after that. Yes. I remember that. Well, God, that was so long ago now. But he, he's typically a reserved guy, so it was nice to see him fired up. So out of character, but you know, remember that? Like he didn't intend. Like it was kind of like hyperbole. Like he told the players in the locker room before the game, it was like, "Hey guys, like." I, I want us to get fired up, you know. The first time we scored with the whole team out there, kind of like, I just want you to be happy and excited. I was being I, facetious. Yeah, I don't, don't really, really do need it. for you to go out there, but they're like, all right, coach, we got you. And the rest is history. Yeah, so I mean, it's one all of those things. All they heard was celebrate. Yeah, like, oh, really, coach? All right. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things, like, if you're an opposing fan, like, you think it's trash, what a classless move, but it's like... Not on. when it's Mark Rick. And like, yeah, Mark Rick did not plan for that to happen, guys. But yeah, that's an awesome one, Charlie. That's a really good one. But for my favorite memory of Mark Richt, I'm going to go off the radar here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get personal with you guys for a second, okay? So I'm going to go back to, God, what year is this? 2005, 2006. I was a student at UGA. And look, a lot of people have Mark Rick stories, and they have a lot better Mark Rick stories than I have. I'm not saying this is a great story. It's just my story with Mark Rick. It's my experience with Mark Rick. And so I really wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a coach. And I really wanted to get involved with the Georgia football program. I want to get started there as a team manager, whatever I can do. Basically, I just wanted to help. I love Georgia. I wanted to help do whatever I could. I wanted to be a part of it. And along the way, if I could learn a little something, that'd be awesome too. And so I um, I set about trying to make that happen. I had no connections. I didn't know anybody, man. I had no connections whatsoever. So when you're in that situation, what do you do? I mean, you just badger people, right? Like you just take the initiative and you do what you got to do to try to get a foot in the door to just to get a meeting, just to, to talk with Coach Rick. And I was a nobody. I still am a nobody, all right? And so I his his executive assistant was a woman named Ann Hunt. I think she's still Kirby's executive assistant. I believe that's correct. And so I got her number, and God bless the woman. I called her every single day for about three months. I'm not exaggerating, guys. Every single day, at least during the week, Monday through Friday, I called Ann Hunt. And most times she answers, sometimes she didn't, I'd leave a message, but I tried to talk to her every single day. And so I got to the point where like this lady and I, we just, we knew each other by name for a couple months there, uh, even though I never met her in person. And I didn't know if I'd ever get to meet Mark Rick. I didn't know if it would ever happen, but I was going to do everything I possibly could to make it happen, right? So finally, um, he relented, right? He gave in and I got a chance to meet with Mark Rick. I got to go into his office in Buttsmere and this man... Just got again, guys. I'm I was a nobody. I am a nobody. I had no right to be meeting with with Mark Rick in that situation, but that man sat down with me and gave me a half hour, a full half hour of his time. You guys know how busy football coaches are. Now it was the off season. It was after signing day. I think it was like a March or April day. I think it was. I think it was March. It was before spring practice. I want to say. And the man just could not have been kinder and more gracious to me. He treated me like I was somebody. Like I was as important as he was. And I clearly was not. And he just sat there and asked me about myself, asked me about my story and my background, told me about his, his self and his background and gave me his story. And it was just an incredibly awesome 30 minutes of my life just to sit there and just experience that man and just how he treated me. I mean, he didn't know me at all, at all. All he knows is I'm just some some punk kid who won't stop calling his assistant. And he was all ready to set me up with uh, with being a manager, doing that kind of thing, and just being involved in the program. And uh, then, then he asked me to go talk to Willie Martinez, who at the time was the defensive coordinator. 
And uh, so it didn't end up working out because Willie Martinez told me that he's he just looked at me as like, who are you? And basically shut me down, said that he already had somebody lined up from a, a guy that he knew he was he was bringing his son on, and so there weren't any spots. And so it did not end up working out for me at that time, and it's okay. It would have been awesome, and uh, my life would have gone down a totally different path if it would have ended up working out. But I'm extraordinarily happy with my life now and what I'm doing. I'm very, very, very happy with that. And actually, in retrospect, I'm kind of glad it didn't go down that way. At the time, I wouldn't have told you that, but now looking back, because that's just not a lifestyle that I want. That's why I I started out as a coach coming out of college, and I got out of that because of the lifestyle. Honestly, I want to be around my family, want to be around my wife, and that's just not possible when you do that. But the fact remains, Mark Rick took the time to meet with me, a nobody, and just treated me with so much kindness and grace and respect. And he just saw value in me. Again, a nobody. He saw value in me. And I think that's Mark Rick in a nutshell. Again, I know people have far better Mark Rick stories than I do, but that's my story. I want to share that with you. But I know that's not really what you were going for with the question. I know you're going more for like a, a Georgia football moment. So for me, it's going to be really hard to beat two plays. The hobnail boot play and the Michael Johnson touchdown against Auburn to send us to the SEC championship game. I was not at either game. I was in high school when those games were, were played, but I was watching them very closely at home. Uh, I couldn't go to those games back then because I had games myself on Fridays, and then we had to watch film on Saturdays, so it just was tough to make those road games. Made as many home games as I could. Road games wasn't always in the cards for me, but I was watching those games. I remember like vividly the Michael Johnson play jumping over my sofa, kind of on my sofa. My mom about murdered me when I did that. I remember the hobnail boot play, listening to Larry Munson on the radio at home, watching it on TV, and kind of just running around in circles in my house. Those are two plays that will always, always, always stick with me. And look, guys, I I know some of you have been around for for longer than I have, and you remember some of the older years, the Donnan years, the Goff years, the the Dooley years more than I do. Look, I kind of grew up... I, when I was younger growing up, I would go to the Georgia football camp, and it was always the Jim Donnan Georgia football camp. I remember Ray Goff a little bit. I was really young then. Donnan is when I really started paying much closer attention, and then Rick is really when I came of age as a Georgia fan. So beyond the fact that Mark Rich is an incredible, as I said, I think what I tweeted, I was a Hall of Fame human being, um, which is 100% true. But despite that, like just as a football coach from that perspective, which I think is the direction you're going with this question— I, I came of age as a Georgia fan with Mark Rick as the coach. So he always has and always will hold a special place for me in my heart as a, as a Georgia fan, as a Georgia guy, because that's where um, my love for Georgia really, really, really started to take off was when Mark Rick was our coach. And obviously it kind of coincided with our program kind of reasserting itself among the nation's elite. So I just I just want to know, and I know everybody knows this, and because we all do, I, I love Mark Rick. I love the man. I absolutely love him. I loved him as a coach. I love him as a human being. And uh, I, I know some people don't like to get caught up in those emotions. I'm an emotional guy, so I get caught up in that kind of stuff. I got choked up a little bit in the stands there on Saturday um, just to see the, the guy get honored the way that he was. He deserves it, man. I love him. I'm, I obviously love Kirby Smart. I'm thrilled that Kirby Smart's our coach. But Mark did a lot of a lot of work to lay the groundwork for Curry to be able to kind of take things off and take it to the other level. And let's not forget that Mark really did kind of reinvigorate our program coming off those years with Goff and, and Donnan as well. But I'm a Mark Rick guy, and I will always be a Mark Rick guy, and I am certainly not ashamed to say that. All right, Charlie, uh, is that it? That's it for this week. That's it for this week. Uh, you're going to be back later this week, right? 
Yes, for the pick show. Yeah, so the interest of full disclosure, again, inside baseball here, we're recording this Sunday night after I record the recap episode with Curtis and Charlie. You still haven't watched all of the games. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know how well I did or did not do. I know that I got the Tennessee game right. Uh, I know that Would I Would you like got... me to tell you No, 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 do not spoil. I got, I got a lot of football queued up in DVR to go back and watch tonight and tomorrow, so... Well, I can tell you a lot that no, happened. No, 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 there... no, 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 don't even, do not even start. Please don't do that. I love my college football. I want to watch every game. I don't want to just look at the scores. I want to see these games. So I know I got Tennessee right. I know we got Georgia right, all right? I thought, they were, I thought we were getting the backdoor cover there. I thought they were getting the backdoor cover, and I would have been okay if we covered. That would have been great. Another score would have been awesome. But we got that one right. Um, I don't even know who else was on the slate. Oh, we got AM right? Right? Yes. AM over Auburn. So I think, okay, so at least the theory I can think of off the top of my head we got right. I'm sure I missed a lot along the way. But we'll have a full recap of that when we get to the end of the week on our picks episode. And maybe I, did I go 8 0, no, Charlie? Tell me that. Did I go 8 0? Negative. Did I? I no. 7 1? Negative. Oh, okay, okay. We're going to stop there. All right, we'll save the rest of that for later on this week. But Charlie will be back later on with our Week 11. Oh, that sucks to even say Week 11 Picks of the Week. And I will be back on Wednesday for our official preview of the Georgia-Tennessee game. So thanks for listening, guys. We always appreciate it. We'll be back later this week with a lot of great content for you. For Charlie, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dog.